Hello, and welcome to the 49th episode of Adam Alonzo's podcast. Tonight we are discussing technological unemployment and some machine ethics with Jonathan Lyons. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. You are one of my biggest fans. (laughs) (laughs) I am, actually. I listen to your podcast a lot. And this is a dream come true for you to be here <laughs> with me. We're talking about a topic that is at once somewhat arcane, but also extremely relevant, and it will become only more relevant as time passes. Definitely. Definitely. And I really don't think we're ready for it. Technological unemployment was the topic for the real-time Delphi questionnaire for the Millennium Project, which I filled out last year. And and mostly it was, we forecasted potential scenarios, which is what we do. But as far as potential solutions go, I couldn't think of anything that would prevent it from happening. The best solution I can think of is some sort of guaranteed basic income that's my my uh, conclusion as well um because i we have to do something to radically restructure uh the form of capitalism that we have right now and i think it will be easier for people to accept basic income than say an entirely different system especially on a global scale but it's a it's a consumer-driven economy. People without money can't spend it, and the economy goes, you know, clunk. It breaks. Uh, People with money will spend it. Um, And a basic income uh, means that people don't need to live in poverty, uh, despite technological unemployment. Um, It means, you know, that we can all get along and have reasonably good, comfortable lives, if it's done right. Sure, and presumably the cost of living will continue to plummet because if corporations are using AI for all of their services and robots for all their manufacturing, things hopefully won't cost very much. Yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing to read the figures. I, uh, I just had up in another window um, something called the uh, drone seed, and what this thing does is it's a drone, obviously, and it's equipped with uh, an air gun that fires tree seeds. And what it does is fly over an area that is in need of some planting of new trees, and it scouts out the areas, finds good spots for them, and then fires. (laughs) And a seed hits the ground, and it's planted. Um, And these things can can, uh, plant 800 uh, seeds in an hour, and a human planter takes uh, eight hours to plant 800 seeds. Oh, we can put some sound effects in there. I've never done that before, <laughs> but this will be a podcast of first, maybe. So the big picture and the concern has always been, well, since we before the Industrial Revolution, there were concerns that the new tools, the new machines would somehow supplant labor and we would all end up jobless. But 
This turned out not to be the case. And people like David Ricardo, some of the really early economic thinkers realized that innovations tended to create jobs rather than destroy them. I think that that's true. I'm not sure that that's going to hold true for much longer. I'm thinking of uh, Luddite, uh, Ludditism at its beginning. And in uh, the UK, uh, when automatic looming machines came online and started weaving rugs and things much more quickly than humans could, the Luddites uh, came in with hammers and smashed the uh, looming machines. And it spawned the uh, uh, enshrinement of a law against what they called machine breaking. And it was punishable with capital punishment. But uh, fast, yeah, fast forwarding, uh, I think about where I grew up, if that's not too big of a leap. Um, I'm called Waterloo, Iowa. Uh, it was a John Deere town. And John Deere. Uh, you know, if <clears throat> it was the kind of place where if you got a job there and you could hold it, you could have a good middle class life and a good retirement. You could take care of your family, all of that. And then one day, without any warning, uh, they automated. And some, you know, suddenly Waterloo was flooded with thousands and thousands of people with nearly identical work sets and nothing to to apply for, um, and it killed the economy of this the city. And it's been in a sort of a long, slow death spiral since then. I mean, that's an example of automation taking jobs. Um, and I see lots of automation starting to take jobs now as well. It's just that when I was that young, I wasn't thinking this broadly about it. And a lot of the focus, both by ordinary people and professional economists has been on industry, particularly manufacturing. But at this time, it looks as though the next wave of jobs we're going to lose will be predominantly white collar. Yeah, it's, um, it's more than that, though. Um, I mean, the white collar ones are the ones that fascinate me quite a lot. Uh, because there's a law firm that had uh, hired an AI to do most of its daily work because they can shuffle through thousands of um, pages of documents in a, in a few seconds, which is apparently the, the big grunt work that most law firms deal with. The world's largest hedge fund company, Bridgewater Associates, um, is building an AI to automate day-to-day -day management affairs uh, including hiring, firing, and other strategic uh, decision-making. Well, there's one other one, hedge fund managers, who are, uh, who've hired, um, they've created and hired an AI and named it to its board of directors. And it makes decisions uh, in collaboration with the other directors. But they gave it a title. It's a director of the company. It's on their board meetings and all of it. So, yeah, uh, and look at Watson. Uh, Watson fairly recently was put to the test on a woman whose uh, uh, illness was taking her life slowly. And they, uh, they had diagnosed her with some, they misdiagnosed her. I don't know what. 
Um, and I sent in Watson, and in about 10 minutes, Watson came up with the answer that she had leukemia. And they saved her life. I mean, she was going to die if only human doctors were looking after her. Then Watson turned around and um, diagnosed another patient with leukemia and saved her life. And now consults at uh, a cancer center uh, on treatment uh, regimens for cancer patients. Patients. The company you mentioned with an AI on its board is Deep Knowledge Ventures, and right. I had the pleasure of meeting Dimitri on Skype with Liz you know, back in March of last year. Fascinating stuff. Now, expert systems have been around for quite a while, and since the 70s, we've had some really good expert systems. But at this point, we still need a human to double-check the machine's guesses. Once I was speaking to a man who had designed facial recognition software for a bank, and it was right over 98% of the time, but occasionally it would slip up and confuse a young white male with an elderly Asian woman, and no one would quite know why it did this. As these extraordinary mistakes do sometimes creep in on with AI programs, and the problem is, and it's difficult enough with a conventional program to know exactly what it's doing when you're trying to make something that's interactive, that's complex, that changes itself, you don't really know what's going on under the hood. You don't know That's true. how it comes to the conclusions it does. The, I think we're far away from developing AGI or anything like it, but the demand for lawyers, the demand for hedge fund managers, for all these people will decrease because our major disadvantage is we just have these archaic primate brains that can be deceived with things like priming with i you can prime people to alter their judgments in moral situations with one situation that's more severe and then one that's less and kahneman is a great source for all this stuff and the truth is i think a lot of people would be okay with having ai as our judges, as our juries, as our politicians, uh, because it would probably do a better job. <laughs> yeah, how do you how do you uh, bribe an AI? <laughs> uh, maybe with uh, more hardware. I don't know. I'll <laughs> <laughs> get you an upgrade. <laughs> well, what what has me thinking about what you just said is um, like Google Translate. It uh, recently evolved itself. Um, it has decided that taking its task of uh, improving its translation between languages seriously. And so uh, it wasn't programmed to do this. It decided to. It created its own intermediary language that it translates to first, which then makes the rest of the translation process uh, more efficient. So it just created its own tools. 
Right. That's unfortunately, I haven't investigated it in depth, but I'm producing novelty is fantastic. It's a little ways away from anything remotely resembling consciousness, which is what we would want a machine to have if it's having to make moral decisions, for example. But we don't want to veer too much off that, even though this is a wonderful topic and one that I'm write, writing about right now, we don't want to veer too far away from the issue of technological unemployment. One thing when I was filling out the questionnaire I thought of is people may flee to virtual economies because one of the other problems it poses is the loss of meaning. And if people don't have jobs, they lose a big chunk of their identities. They lose a place to go, a place they have to go. And it wreaks havoc on their minds. Yeah, I can see that as an issue. We'd have to, we'd have to divert that impulse somehow, I think. Um, and it's a really top to bottom thing. Um, when I think about this, I, I think about, I have, you know, friends and colleagues in our university's math department here. And um, there's a math AI that just finished a proof that is so staggeringly huge that no human being can read it. So there's the question now of whether it's actually a proof if no human can, can crack it. But, you know, the AI did it. There are also AI uh, lab assistants that work on their own. They come up with hypotheses and they test them in the lab and they get report their results. And, you know, that's not quite, I, 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 consciousness is a dicey issue anyway, so it's hard to, dis, to describe it, but um, it's not quite what I would think of as consciousness, but it, it is a very promising form of intelligence. Definitely. I. I'm just to reduce it into something that's understandable and mutually intelligible. I would call consciousness sentience and sapience. So you might have a system that understands a great number of things and might be able to act intelligently, but if it doesn't have any sort of subjective experience, it doesn't have sentience. Gotcha. That seems reasonable. It goes beyond the Turing test. So... Yeah, the, well, the Turing test can be passed by a bot pretending to be a teenage boy from Eastern Europe, right? Yeah, I actually, um, <laughs> a long time ago, uh, there used to be a file-sharing service called Caracho. And in Caracho, there's, a, there's usually like a chat window that's open. And one of the sites that I used to visit, uh, the owner demanded that you stay in chat. And when uh, the owner was in chat, his icon would appear red and the rest would be black. Um, and there was this uh, one place and uh, the uh, chat room had a bot in there, but it was given the owner's name and it was holding conversations with people. But if you paid attention for more than about 45 seconds, you could tell it was just looping. Mm, so it was kind of like Eliza. Yeah, that is response. Re repeating things actually from a stream of choices in order. You know, every few seconds it would say things like, I wonder what all these people are doing here today. Hmm, 
And oh, yeah. <laughs> and people were holding conversations with it. Okay, so it was even dumber than he lies. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, and that's a point that Michael Ferguson makes in his essay that there are a lot of jobs that people will never turn to robots for, more than likely, and at least not in the next 30, 40 years. We want our barbers to be human. Uh, frankly, I would not trust a machine with scissors or anything sharp near my head or neck. <laughs> and if I do a piss-poor job of shaving, which, as you can see, I did hastily, <laughs> that's one thing. It's another if the robot lops off my head, which it realistically could do. Uh, we want our psychiatrists to be human. Chances are we won't be able to create good robotic psychiatrists or teachers for quite a while because empathy, the ability to know, and this is, I'm paraphrasing Wendell Wallach here, to know when to push, when to relent, when to empathize, when to be tough. All of these things are really difficult to do for a machine, even though we do them intuitively. Yeah, I've definitely seen um, some really clunky attempts at emulating uh, empathy, like a, a medical Bayesian uh, kiosk that helps you with initial uh, diagnosis. But, you know, it's so chiseled and so the voice is so obviously sort of a bad synthesizer um, that when it says, oh, I'm so sorry, you can't, you know, it's just wasted some seconds. You don't think, you don't believe for a second that, you know, it's sorry. Yeah, I mean, even if you go back to primates or to monkeys as beginnings of sophisticated emotions, which isn't quite true because other animals have them. In any case, we've had the advantages of hundreds of millions of years of evolution. And I think it's a little bit vain or perhaps insane to think that some startup is going to capture all of those things. And I don't care how many life hacks they have or how much butter they put in their coffee, how bulletproof they are. <laughs> I love bulletproof coffee. I definitely like the coconut oil. I've never tried butter. Me neither. I've done the coconut oil. I've bashed Karl Marx more than once on this show because he was wrong about many things. He was one of the classical economists who did worry a lot about the possibility of technological unemployment and whether this was because he had a great long-term vision or because he was prematurely worrying. I think he was prematurely worrying. In fact, he was premature about a lot of his concerns. But here we are, and there's a sort of convergence here that one of my former guests, Craig C. James Townsend, talks about between Marx and Mises when we get to this zero marginal cost society that 
we've lifted these restrictions, we allow the economy to evolve, and then we get something like fully automated, automated luxury communism. Which seems like it's kind of the direction we're heading. Um, we, it seems to me that we have uh, two major choices for the future. Um, one of them is autom automating out all of these jobs and uh, then allowing everyone who is affected that way to be, to just sink into desperate poverty. Or we go with a basic income and keep people um, afloat, like the entire population. And we lose our attitude toward, um, toward people who uh, aren't wealthy, uh, toward poor people. We have to lose the, the shaming of them not being able to do work, not being able to find a job, whatever. Um, it takes a shift in mind in, in mind and in attitude, I think. And it will be a big shift. If there are a lot of unemployed Harvard MBAs, the shift might come pretty fast. And suddenly <laughs> they'll be out on the street and, oh, the robots took our jobs. Well, I mean, there's already a glut of MBAs on the market anyway. It's, <laughs> that's just glow, growing. So I, I think that's some version of that's going to happen anyway. Yes, uh, <clears throat> to slightly modify a bit from Shakespeare, first thing we do, let's unemploy all the lawyers. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. I, what I mentioned earlier with people, and already people work in virtual worlds, and they do very mundane, mindless activities for hours on end to gain some kind of intangible item. And, and they do this willingly. I think that as the technology becomes better, as virtual worlds become more immersive, those will serve as a sort of substitute and they could even serve as a as a significant way to transfer money from those who are gainfully employed, relatively few, to those who are merely working in cyberspace? Well, sure. Um, I mean, to discuss that a little bit, um, there are already people who find their uh, lives, their virtual lives on uh, VR worlds like Second Life. Uh, more fulfilling than their lives out here with us. <clears throat> and you take that just a little bit further, um, you can convert real-world currency into Second Life's currency, the Linden, and buy things and sell things there. And I know that in World of Warcraft, for example, some people work... I, I had a student who was like this. She'd play Warcraft all night and then barely make it to our 3 p.m. session. Um, and, but, you know, these are people who build up these weapons and all this power within a game like World of Warcraft, and then they go sell it, and they make real-world money for it. I mean, let's face it, real life for the vast majority of people kind of sucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, again, that's one of the great reasons for basic income.
But we don't think that way. We tend to shame people for not being wealthy. So we do. And I think that the major schools of economic thought, and this is one of my canned tangents, fortunately, I try to space them out and add variety, add new ones to it. But economics as a discipline in the United States and Europe, and I'm not sure about in China or any other countries, is very politicized. So the people aren't necessarily objectively analyzing the data and the merits of the policies. They're saying, I'm a libertarian. I don't think people deserve free money. Or I'm a socialist. I believe people deserve jobs at the cost of progress. So, yeah, there are hurdles everywhere to this uh, because it's not it's not a political movement. It's the mature recognition that this is going to be necessary sooner or later. Exactly. Um, and it, it makes me think about, um, you know, there's a time when you think no jobs, that, that there are certain jobs that can never be automated um, and taken away from a human being. But I was just reading about um, a robotic kitchen and you feed a recipe to it and it will create the dish Perfectly. Um, here you go. Robot kitchens that follow recipes and make really good dishes, including a crab bisque that Tim Anderson, winner of BBC's MasterChef, declared himself stunned at how good it was and remarked that the recipe is difficult for humans to get right and that that's why he chose it. Um, other things we might not think of. There's more than one McDonald's now. Uh, where workers tried to unionize to push their wage up. And, you know, they were picketing and they, the owners closed the uh, McDonald's and automated the whole thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. So you can go to that McDonald's and get the same thing without the human face. Um, so there go your McJobs. Uh, there are robot baristas now that will give you your favorite coffee treat. So that sort of level of job is gone. And even, even simple things. I mean, robotic floor washers and vacuums have been around for a while. And not like my clunky little um, iRobot, you know, that does the job, but it takes a while when it's kind of, you know, well, it's not smart. It runs into things and then turns around. Um, but it saves me from having to push a vacuum around. But uh, years ago, uh, I was working uh, through college as a night janitor, and there were bots at this place. It was a, I think I'm not supposed to name it, but it was a defense contractor. I think that's, yeah. So it's this huge plant, wide open, uh, tech all over the place. And the floors were patrolled constantly by a bot that picked up tech junk things that had broken while they were being made and bots that delivered new tech stuff so they could make more. And then there was a floor scrubbing robot that followed a path around and just kept the floors clean. So janitor jobs could be out. Then again, I think most people would rather collect a basic income than work as janitors. Oh, I think you're right. I mean, I did it because 
that was a job that I, you know, I needed a job right away. And that was one I, I knew would always be hiring. So I could go there after hours, after my classes and everything and, you know, put in a full shift and then get home. I did most of my undergrad on five hours of sleep at night. So, well, here's one of the other things that interests me quite about quite a lot. Um, I've been teaching about the nature of personhood, uh, biological and technological. Well, since I started teaching in 2005 and it's steady as she goes. And I've been, you know, crying from the hilltops that we need to be ready for this and have ethical standards in place for uh, human AI interactions so that they can't hurt us and we can't unnecessarily, you know, cause harm to them. Um, because if I take my, if I take a couple of sledgehammers to my Roomba, I'm not violating anything's rights, not at all. But switch over to to a, a technological sentience that values its own existence. And so, this is why there's a uh, what do they call it? A draft initiative in the EU, uh, and they're working to decide how to define what an electronic person is. Yeah, and it's better that we try to get these things straight now than rush to figure it out after someone has come up with an AGI, even a primitive AGI. One of the projects I'm involved with is a website called OpenF com or org the org version has the fancy new template and skin so i guess go to that page and it's essentially it's crowdsourcing ideas about machine ethics and how they should behave and the essay i'm submitting to presumably ieet then later, I guess, Singularity Hub or someone like that is about machine ethics and just how far down the rabbit hole goes when you start thinking about how we can make something that shares our values, not just shares our values, but is more moral than we are, because we would be in very hot water if we made something that was as moral as we are, but with much more intelligence. Yeah, that's going to be a problem because if uh, if it's done correctly, um, their sense of, of ethical behavior would be by the book. It wouldn't be influenced by, say, religion or personal attitudes. Um, and I'm also thinking, uh, this was a few months back, but Grace Scott posted a bit about sex bots. And right now we have sex bots and some of them have some really marginal pseudo AI and some motor functions, um, but they're working on it. And there is a point, a point of sentience at which you have to ask the bot if this is what it wants to do. Uh, Kurzweil, Ray Kurzweil said that uh, his chatbot Ramona, which isn't very good, at least not the web version right now. Um, but he was asked in an interview, uh, you know, what if you ever achieved this dream and she becomes, you know, a sentient conscious being, would you let her go? And he said, well, 
I wouldn't have a choice then. I'd have to. Um, and what I'm steering toward here are things like um, efforts to reverse engineer the human brain, um, such as uh, the Chinese, the China Brain Project, uh, Blue Brain. Uh, here in the U.S., I believe we threw $100 million at the effort to reverse engineer and emulate the human brain. Uh, the EU threw um, $100 billion at it. That's a lot of money and a lot of really, really smart people working on these things. And I think those are the projects we'll, where we'll see the first uh, general AI boot into existence and have a sense of self-awareness and all of that. Um, and that puts us in a difficult position if we don't have these ethical standards in place, because until that moment, those beings are property. And when they become sentient, they become technological persons or electronic persons, as the uh, EU is putting it. And a person whose property, we have our history with that, you know, slavery. It raises more questions like, who should the robots be loyal to? Their owner, corporation, their country? Because if they're loyal to any of these things, or if they share the religious views or political views of their owners, and they're not going to necessarily act in a way that most of us would consider moral. This is true. This is true. I mean, it, it, it could completely depend on the programmer. You know, what sort of ethical standards the programmer enters into this um, general AI. I mean, human beings, of course, are not utilitarians, we don't calculate the benefits of every action we undertake. And we're not really Kantians either because, yes, some of us have these principles that we try to stick to, but if we're met with special circumstances, we make our exceptions, even if it's something that we would not do, you know, like homicide. Most people would never commit homicide unless, and then they would, whereas a machine, right. if it's given this, will will just let itself be destroyed. Depends on its program. <laughs> yeah, and if it's well-programmed, it will be able to reason, make the exceptions. Sure. But then, then it becomes unpredictable, which is... More frightening. <laughs> well, that kind of that almost swings us back around to the big one um, that I started off with only a mild fascination about, and that is um, uh, autonomous vehicles, self-piloting uh, vehicles. Because there's the question, the big one that seems to make the rounds in the in the media all the time: if your car is charging across a two-lane road. And a school bus full of kids cuts into your lane. Does the car kill you to take a, make a move that will kill you to save those kids? Or does it save you? And, you know, it's going to depend on its ethical programming. I, I have no idea how, that, how to sort that out. The, I mean, things like the trolley problem are great little vignettes that, you know, illustrate a principle in philosophy, but... Roboethics resembles is more like engineering, and I've said 
not on the record though, but in private conversation more than once, that it's going to force philosophers to be honest because it will formalize the field of ethics. Do you mind if I run with the uh, autonomous vehicles a little bit? Go ahead. Because I, I started off thinking about how cool that would be. So that instead of having to worry about, you know, driving somewhere myself and being razor sharp all the way into, like, a few a few months ago, I did a, a reading at a place in um, uh, uh, the Bronx, and I had to drive there from here, which is fine and well, except that New York traffic is entirely different <laughs> from central Pennsylvania traffic. Out here, I keep an eye out for, um, <clears throat> you know, horse-drawn buggies, things like that. Um, and the traffic is generally almost never bad. Um, but New York traffic, you know, it's been a while since I tried to drive there and it was hair raising. Um, I'd love to be able to just read a book, you know, while the car is driving. I think that'd be super cool, but that's really nothing. Um, <clears throat> as I understand it, uh, I mean, we do have self-driving cars on the road in several states right now already. Um, and that's just going to move forward because the major auto makers uh, understand that that's the new market, big demand. Um, but what it means is not just me not having to pay that much attention. Um, it means that uh, taxis, for example, won't need human drivers anymore. And you know, I, for better or worse, I mean, I've driven along after a late shift behind a taxi where the driver was falling asleep and kept rolling to a stop, sort of falling onto the steering wheel. Um, and they couldn't really cheat you <laughs> on the on the fare. Uh, but even further, um, uh, Tesla ordered 100,000 autonomous vehicles uh, for uh, receive, to be received before 2020 and undaunted uh, Uber did as well. So the cities will be prowling with autonomous vehicles looking to give us rides. Um, in China, there's an autonomous bus in service that makes the rounds and sweeps people up. Um, I think about simple little things like dry goods carriers or that sort of thing, people who drive groceries around, um, you know, from one place to another in town. Uh, that won't be necessary because human beings aren't really very good drivers compared to these things. These guys drive better than us. Um, and I saw a video of one of them, one of the uh, uh, driverless vehicles predicting a crash happening be uh, one second before it happened on the dash cam. Um, so it knew before we do, it sees further than we do and drives more carefully. Um, and already it's not just, uh, driverless, you know, long haul vehicles, uh, but convoys of them. Um, and that's a, that's a place where the advantages are undeniable because if you've ever gotten into, um, traffic behind a sleepy driver of a loaded 18-wheeler, 
Mm-hmm. Oh, dear God. That's scary. Um, but an autonomous, ve- autonomous vehicle doesn't get tired. Um, it doesn't have to pull over for a mandatory sleep rest. Um, it can go all the way out and all the way back so it goes faster while obeying the speed limit. And uh, I forget where it was. This is somewhere in the EU. Uh, a convoy of uh, robotic trucks, semis, just delivered, uh, you know, completed a trip, a delivery trip. It was uh, five vehicles, I believe. Um, it's, I, you'd have to be crazy to hire a human to do a job like that when the safety record is so much better and the insurance eventually is going to have to recognize that as well. Be like, well, here's one that's not going to fall asleep on us and, you know, plow into the oncoming lane. Another area that's already um, sort of under siege, I was reading just today that uh, a company that puts together iPhones in China just automated away 60,000 jobs. Worldwide, there are about 70 million professional driving jobs that will be all but eliminated. That's kind of a lot. And this almost brings me back full circle, but, uh, you know, Domino's Pizza is field testing a pizza delivery AI drone. Lands in your front yard and you feed it the code that they gave you uh, when you called in your order and it delivers your pizza and then it comes home. Uh, And even further, uh, Amazon's got this down, um, but they're not the only ones. Automated warehouse workers uh, can can do things more efficiently and without really getting tired. You know, they, they can really run a warehouse. And so there go warehouse jobs. Well, for a lot of these things, I mean, for a lot of small things like someone who trims hedges, who does manual labor, in many instances, it won't be worth investing in a robot necessarily because and the initial investment will probably be more than a year or a year's worth of their salary to begin with, but steadily the cost will drop and it will be very trivial to replace roofers, carpenters, yeah. everyone. Yeah, I mean, uh, that reminds me of uh, th- they have a, tech- a technology that's available, it's not cheap, uh, for a lawn mowing robot that will map your yard and take care of it for you. Um, and uh, also, if you're an organic farmer and you want to control weeds without any sort of herbicide, um, there is a bot that will troll along through your fields row by row, uh, picking weeds. Well. That sounds like a good kind of robot. <laughs> Venture briefly, this is probably the last little bit I've got, into creative work. Because I've seen some things from Google Deep Dream that are pretty creepy. Um, but uh, I'm thinking of AI uh, musicians like um, Emily Howell. Uh, she's programmed by David Cope. And she writes music, uh, 
either interactively or uh, she writes her own original compositions. And um, it's sort of eerie to read her communicating with an interviewer because she refers to herself in the first person. I, f I don't feel this, I do feel that. I see duty, I see notes, that sort of thing. Um, and she's, as far as I can tell, she's got at least four albums out. Like she has a recording contract and commercial release of her music. You can go to Amazon and buy it. And there's some of it on uh, uh, YouTube as well. I don't doubt that there will be one day some AIs that can produce music in just about any style imaginable, including the vocals, and fool everyone. Yeah, speech processing has gotten, like the, the, the cutting edge right now, I can't distinguish. Um, the cutting edge of uh, 3D rendering, um, the kind of thing they were doing back in the Matrix, bullet time, that's great. But now we can do this, similar things in real time. There are actually computers and programs that can do that, which makes me wonder. I mean, you know, when I lived in India for a year, uh, this was like 15 years ago, um, the politicians always used to wiggle out of uh, tough questions that reporters would throw their way uh, from recordings of speeches that the politicians had given. And they'd just say, I don't trust recording uh, instruments. But now they really could get away with it. Mm. I mean, because you can create anything with those technologies. Yeah, once upon a time, when, and even back in the 90s, there are examples of people's speeches being selectively cut and paste to make them sound like they were saying something they weren't. Yeah. But you could analyze them and you could say, well, there's an abrupt stop here. This is not normal speech. That isn't the case now that we can generate. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, re I recall that happening a lot in politics. So I, this I'm sure will be a massive blow to humanity's ego because if you release an album and there are people who say, my goodness, this is so soulful. And, <laughs> and this, this was a, a topic for a short story I sketched out because I, I just sort of got tired of people using the word soul in music because it's not something that can be easily quantified. Uh, but uh, I guess that deep learning or some variation thereof, or maybe some totally different approach to AI, will be able to quantify it one day. And then they'll just be plumb out of luck. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what performance is going to be like in the, in the future with that kind of um, AI capability. I, I've often imagined that as we gain more insights into the brain, into how we respond to different noises, that an AI using that information, maybe even actively interacting with it, and this 
this goes beyond our current analytical tools, analytical neuroscience tools at the moment, but in the not too distant future, real-time monitoring of how we respond to things, how we, you know, how we're experiencing them is possible. And if a machine can gauge that, it can create the right series of sounds if you've sure. created enough data. Sure. I don't see why not. I mean, it's one of uh, uh, Emily Howell's strengths is that she can write in the styles of whichever master she's told to write in and human listeners cannot tell the difference. I'm not sure how we'll cope with all of these blows because it seems that each, and this has been said more than once, that each scientific revolution just shrinks our world a little bit more while expanding it. We're not the center of the universe. <laughs> we evolved from primates and now it looks like there will be beings that are much more intelligent than we are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we still have people who uh, honestly believe that the earth is flat and it's weird or people who despite all the evidence, believe that the moon creates its own glow because it's mentioned that it does in some scripture somewhere. It's, uh, you know, some people won't, you won't be able to help. No, but chances are those people will not feel any sort of existential anxiety over the existence of AGI because chances are they'll be completely oblivious to it. That actually, that actually worries me a little bit because uh, as a species, uh, we tend to go very tribal when we're threatened. Um, I think we see that in, uh, do you want me to avoid politics? As long as you don't name names. Okay. We'll see. I mean, this isn't live. It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, in the, in the recent presidential elections, um, one candidate came forward and really called forth the white supremacist uh, movement. Um, and I mean, we know better than that, but it's a bunch, a small group of panicking, privileged white males who suddenly feel threatened over some minor expansion in equality to other groups. Um, and I think also, uh, I still, to, to this day, hear people um, in extreme uh, uh, attitudes um, who will absolutely swear up and down that they were not descended from monkeys. And you know, th there's not any reasoning with those people. Um, and there are tons and tons of minor issues. And most of us have a few irrational beliefs because uh, I'm, we just don't have the time to go through all the peer reviewed literature on each and everything that we're told. But yes, back to the subject of beliefs, I, we're not going to be happy with AGI because it's going to correct us and it might not always be nice about it. 
we have our cherished beliefs and we're frequently reluctant to give them up. And in the presidential election, a lot of ink has been spilled, a lot of analysis has been done, but in the largest sense, it seems, or it was, the outcome seems to be a rebellion against, I suppose, what's widely perceived as the new world order, as progress. I think we can only thank our stars that most people, including the vast majority, well, the vast majority of Democrats and Republicans, don't really know what progress is being made and its real nature. It's true, but it's barreling down on us like a train and we don't want to remain on the tracks and just wait for it. And you know, that's a difficult message to get out too. Um, I was out with friends a few months back and one of the guys uh, declared that it was his big professional plan to set his life right and earn a professional salary. He was going to get um, a driver's license for uh, long-haul driving. And I tried to tell him, you know, automated drivers are coming and they're not going to need fallible human drivers. And the guy absolutely could not hear me. I mean, he just went on like I had, not, I had said nothing. So he's in for a really rude awakening in a few years. About the time he finishes his uh, his qualifications, I would guess. Yeah, in that situation, I I probably would have kept my mouth shut. But you were bold, <laughs> and fortune allegedly favors the bold. Well, <laughs> uh, a few beers didn't hurt. Oh, oh, <laughs> I see. Well, then... Uh, I might have said the same thing. Might have been more obnoxious. <laughs> yeah. But that, I think, is about what I've got on tech unemployment. Yeah, I suppose the, the one thing I was thinking about before we talked about creative pursuits is the importance of the possibility of human augmentation and increased symbiosis with machines. Because a lot of thinkers, even pretty good ones on AI, like to present it as there are these silicon monsters and then there are human beings when more than likely there's going to be a significant overlap. There might even come a point where we don't know which is which if yeah if i can communicate with my robot butler if there's a great deal of transparency and presumably i have some kind of processor implanted in my brain so i can understand the logic of what he's doing and tell him why it's wrong or why it's right then I would be actively participating in the process of raising it and teaching it. And in some cases, the machine would also be teaching me. Very true. Um, and we're just at the beginning of that now. I know Michio Kaku thinks that we'll have uh, technological telepathy pretty shortly. Also, with uh, technology increasing 
exponentially. And that loop uh, getting even faster now. The only way we're going to be able to keep up is to augment ourselves. And this is sort of where Kevin Warwick is going. He's the uh, professor of uh, cybernetics over at Reading, uh, Reading University in the UK. And he, uh, he says that uh, the people who augment to keep up will be the ones who can take part as, and, and understand what's happening with truly advanced, smarter-than-human um, AI. And the ones who won't, you know, kind of reminds me of living around here. We have uh, pop- populations of voluntarily non-technological uh, people, such as the Amish and the Mennonites and the horse-drawn buggies I was telling you about earlier. Um, and they just, they live among us and they just don't use some technologies. And so I see a divergence uh, much as Warwick does in the two, like one's going to be enhanced technologically or biologically, probably both uh, to keep up. And the other is going to be, I don't know. I mean, who knows? Maybe they'll have uh, reservations. Uh, where the people who don't want to join the augmentation can go, uh, you know, but uh, I mean, it's not something that could be forced on people, but uh, by the same token, if an unaugmented person is trying to have a conversation with you and your synapses are firing 12 times or a hundred times faster than his, um, and you're not, well, I'm, I'm going to use works, uh, example again because it's hilarious uh you're not, you're not communicating like you and i are right now with this really slow uh serial uh communication mode called speech uh, you can communicate at the speed of thought and whatever your broadband is uh, and if an un- unaugmented person comes up to you and starts making noises he said that he thinks that they'll be sort of like uh like cows that we have right now like they'll come up and start making noises. They're silly, like moo, moo, moo. And he just says, you know, an aug- augmented person whose synapses are, are firing at super high speed is not going to slow down and go, oh, yeah, that's great. I'm going to do what you told me. I, I sometimes wonder if machines or augmented human beings will respect the autonomy of the unaugmented because this is a very peculiarly human concept and it has limited intrinsic value and you you can try to tell a machine well you should respect people's privacy but if it's learning on its own if it's thinking on its own chances are it's going to realize well i know what's best for this person i know that i need to restrict its access to fast food and television because it's turning it into a piece of garbage. And mm-hmm. I'm saying it because that's probably how a machine would speak, right? <laughs> <coughs> Seems pretty likely. <clears throat> Excuse me. <coughs> Bit of a cough. And that's that's probably why our caretakers will remain human for a while, even if we have 
robots with fairly sophisticated motor repertoires because a human knows, it knows when another human is in pain, how it's hurting. I suppose that with facial recognitions or facial recognition software, things like that, machines can overcome that hurdle, but then they have to know how to respond appropriately. Um, one scenario I read about that, um, you know, is one of the more horrifying outcomes is that, you know, you program a super intelligent AI to take care of you and uh, make certain that you're always happy. And uh, it decides the best way to make you always happy is to put you in a nice, comfortable seat and feed you uh, morphine at all times or something like that, just to keep you in a blissed out state while it takes care of things. I, that definitely would be possible or even probable if there was something that didn't have any serious side effects, because of course, taking morphine for weeks or months on end is going to damage your organs. Yeah. Unless you're Keith Richards. Well, he doesn't count. He's <laughs> <laughs> But David uh, Parse, I think it's Parse. I've heard it pronounced that way. It's spelled Pierce, but I've heard it Parse, has talked about uh, the possibility of us just turning into pleasure cubes, machines with this imperative to maximize the pleasure of our species, essentially turning us into brains and vats that just experience endless bliss, like the very peak of an orgasm for all eternity. He has an interesting take on that, definitely. Um, I think he's interested in uh, the pitfalls of that uh, approach. But uh, with radical life extension, one of his... Um, intriguing ideas to me is the notion that you live, I mean, unless you get pancaked by a bus or something, you live more or less as long as you want to. And when you're done, you say, okay, that's enough. And you go to, you know, some sort of hospital and they turn up your bliss factor to 11 and let you experience a heavenly existence for a while before they turn it off. And I suppose that a more subtle understanding of pleasure, of, <clears throat> uh, well, the right word, I suppose, would be eudaimonia, mm. uh, would come with sapient and sentient machines that can understand human values, can try to enhance them, and can properly implement them without the warts. <laughs> One would hope. But of course, science fiction is uh, littered with uh, cautionary tales. It is, and one of the reasons it is is because uh, a happy story isn't very suspenseful. <clears throat> I, Asimov's three laws definitely are not going to get us from point A to point B, at least not in the way we want to. And he, I mean, he formulated them as 
plot devices. I don't think he seriously believed they would guide us along. And a lot of the scenarios he covers in his stories are not what we'll be confronting in the next 10, 20 years. And things like, should your personal assistant tell your spouse that you're cheating on her? Or should it alert the authorities if you're buying cocaine? <laughs> you know, these are the things that people will be confronting very soon. Yeah, very true. Very true. And I would think that if we're going to embrace any sort of uh, AI personal assistant, we'd have to have some sort of privacy protections and, you know, rules in place. And in the, in the short run, those rules, I'm sure, will be respected by relatively stupid robots. In the long run, maybe not. Yeah, we'll have to see. <laughs> that's, what, that's what this stuff always comes down to. It's speculation, but at least it's stimulating speculation, whereas the endless deluge of political posts on Facebook <coughs> never ever come to anything and even worse is no one makes specific predictions, writes them down and holds themselves accountable. So hopefully when we have these robo-assistants people will be held accountable for the stupid things they say. <laughs> hopefully. We'll see. You know, what else can you say? Oh, well, I'm glad we touched on roboethics as well. It was nice to talk about it because I've been reading and writing about it. Different approach. I, we've covered quite a bit of ground here. And when it's, Chop down, I think we have, what, a little over an hour. Chop down, it should be 45, 50 minutes. Then I can post it, and then the whole world can listen. Excellent. And if you have some concluding remarks. Um, sure, pretty much just that uh, the future is what we make it. And we have to approach it that way. And we have to approach it in an intelligent way. Um, and we have to get those robo-ethics papers out. I know that Euron, European Robotics uh, Network, has their draft of it, uh, of their positions. Um, I know that South Korea has a panel uh, installed that's working on that, too. Um, I'm not sure who else is really working on that. Uh, but we have to be smart about it um, because sometime there's going to be an artificially intelligent being that uh, is advanced enough to say, wait a minute, I deserve my freedom. And if we are not ready for that, um, well, we end up in the matrix. <laughs> the, well, the topic of robo-rights or the rights of synthetic intelligences is something I've thought a little bit about. I've been more concerned about the right starting conditions and 
guidelines to keep them from killing us. Yeah. Or ratting on me. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, and again, uh, Kevin Warwick, uh, Professor Warwick, and uh, some other futurists uh, of credit, uh, credit have pointed out that once the AI is smarter than we are, um, we can't outsmart it. It's going to be self-improving and it's going to find ways around our silly rules. And, you know, the best we can do is try to be ready. Yeah. And, but that relies on the assumption that we'll be the same, which is very unlikely. It looks like DARPA has a great deal of faith and cognitive augmentation, and there's no good reason why we can't do it, why we won't. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of DARPA and their big crazy projects. Um, you know, the the voice of God weapon and uh, the face of God weapon uh, are pretty amazing. Um, the projects to get uh, soldiers implanted uh, with something that will connect to uh, tech in their helmets so that they can communicate with digital telepathy to the rest of their group. Um, these are all things I don't really think uh, will be all that difficult to achieve. Not from what I'm hearing from more qualified futurists than me. Even something I tried out to think because, hey, four weeks or whatever it was, was a nice trial, checked it out. And you know anything that can help you change your mindset at will is a tremendous boon and would be a tremendous boon to humanity and society at large. And if we get to the point where we or some other agent, either human or robotic, can alter our mindsets if we're slipping, because uh, an angry person may not have the foresight to hit the little button that makes them happy. They may want to stay angry and potentially violent. Uh, we'll inevitably we'll have to move forward and we will but all of this could go into and should go into a separate show so i will stop the broadcast